You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we bring back one of our favorite guests, Mr. Jesse Itzler. Jesse is an owner of the Atlanta Hawks basketball team, and he's a highly successful entrepreneur across numerous ventures. For example, he created a highly successful jet card company called Marquee Jet, which was later sold to Warren Buffett's NetJets. He's part founder of the Zico Coconut Water Company, and he's also the founder of the 29029 Mountain Climbing Challenge. When we first had Jesse on the show, he had written a book called Living with a Seal. And in this book, he talks about testing all of his physical limits by hiring a Navy SEAL to live with him for 31 days. This time around, we bring Jesse back on the show to talk about his newest book, Living with the Monks. He learns what turning off his phone and living in deafening quiet taught him about happiness, gratitude, and focus. So without further delay, we bring you the funny and ultra-inspiring Jesse Itzler. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right, so here we are with our good friend, Jesse Itzler. Jesse, so awesome to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be with us. This is the perfect way to, to spend my day. Thanks for having me. Stig, this was like insane, right? This book was really a lot of fun. After reading about Jesse and like then interviewing him and kind of feel that that dude can't surprise you anymore. <laughs> then he writes this book and you're like, huh, I really didn't see that one coming. I mean, hey, what can I say? Well, Jesse, I saw the title of the book, you know, Living with a Monk. And when I saw the title, I immediately shot Mark a message and I said, Jesse has got to come back on the show. I've got to get a copy of this book because I really, really want to read this thing because I know this is just going to be awesome. And so we really appreciate your whole team of folks and Mark helping us out, getting the book in our hands and doing this interview with us, Jesse. This is just awesome. So let's go ahead and start asking you some of these questions here. So what in the world was your initial motivation to do this? Where did the idea come from? Talk to us about like your conversation with Sarah or family members or whatever. Like, what in the world made you think to do this? Well, you know, I did the uh, physical side with SEAL and living with the SEAL. And I got so much out of it. I, I realized that I learned much better through experience than I do through reading. I, I have a hard time comprehending and I'll read a whole book and be like, who was the author or what was the name of the book? But I got so much out of it physically with SEAL. I wanted to explore the spiritual side. You know, I just realized that like I woke up, I'm turning 50 in a couple of months. And the last decade went by like in a flash, literally. And as you get older, as a percentage of your life, time just flies so much quicker. And my whole thing, Preston's dig, you know, a big part of me is about building my life resume and just not looking at time, but looking at moments. And I decided that I just wanted to get, you know, this would be an unbelievable experience. I can explore the spiritual side, learn about myself, but really just get away from my phone. I just felt like really overwhelmed, like we all do. And, you know, I wasn't going to go take a vacation and sit on a beach. I've done that 9,000 times and come home and nothing's really changed. I'm relaxed for an hour. So I just said, where are the spiritual masters? And I said, I'm going to go live with monks. So you do such a awesome job. I, I'll tell you, having read, I feel like quite a few books, you are great at putting the person in the moment. And so like when I read the story, when you arrived with the monks and you show up and just the silence, you talk about this, explain like, what was it like when you showed up? Because it, it was nothing what you expected. Well, first of all, I was with eight monks that had been on the property, four of them had been on the property for 50 years. And they lived on a 500 acre wooded, isolated monastery. And intentionally, I didn't, didn't do any research really into where I was going. I don't want to have any preconceived notions. I don't want to read any blogs or have anyone else put their experience into my head. So the only experience I had with monks was really through watching movies or any kind of articles or stories I'd heard. 
So I thought monastery equaled, you know, 160 to 100 people on a property, walking around in sandals and just silence and meditating all day. And it was nothing like that. At least the monastery I went to, there were eight gentlemen, eight monks. They weren't Buddhist. They were Russian Orthodox. They had their hair. And a big part of their day was built around manual labor and keeping the lights on at the monastery. And spirituality and reflection was a big part of it, but it wasn't the only part of it by any means. And it was quiet, man. I have four kids and I live in you know a world of ding beeps and buzzes on my phone and Skype and this and that. And it's just a really fast paced life like most of us live. And this was the exact opposite. Time stopped. And it was really, really quiet and really slow. And when you have no access, despite the urge to check your phone, you know, check the news, you know, listen to the radio, turn on one of the 10,000 options on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, all that stuff. When you lose the ability to do that and you're forced to just be alone, a lot of amazing things happen. When I went in there with the attitude of like, well, how can I apply some of the principles of this 1,500-year tradition of monasticism, of what the monks do and live their life? How can I apply that to my modern life? You know, like, what are the takeaways? And one of the things right away was like, I realized recently before I went to the monastery, I lost my superpower. And my superpower was being in touch with my gut. I've operated on instinct around people, business, everything off of pretty much gut. I guess that's what happens when you don't break a thousand on your SATs. You, you got to rely <laughs> on like your gut. And all of a sudden, I wasn't making the same good decisions. Not like terrible decisions, like, you know, but just decisions in the past that had guided me in the right direction. And be like, you know, not that I got lucky or luck found me. I put myself in those positions to get lucky by following my instincts. But I was so bombarded with like responding to people and like it was dominating my time that I lost that instinct. And I believe the only way to really get in tune with your gut is to be alone and to think and to free up mental energy. And at first I was bombarded with thoughts because there was nothing to do but think. But afterwards, you know, some really, really powerful things happened to me. Jesse, you mentioned the idea of time kind of standing still. And I noticed that this was a really common theme throughout the book. Talk to us about this idea, because I found this really profound and kind of really important to the underlying point that you're making in the book. Yeah, well, when we think of relationships, we think of relationships in terms of people like, oh, my relationship with my mom or dad or my wife or my kids. Or we think of relationships, you know, really in that way as it relates to our human relationships. But very often, we never really think of our relationship with time or our relationship with money. And those are two big things in everybody's lives. And my relationship with time, I'm very aware of my relationship with time, especially as I turn 50. And it's not a mid-age crisis or anything like that. It's just, I'm just aware that the average American lives to be 78 years old. That's a fact. And I'm turning 50. So I hope I'm not average, but if I am, I have 28 summers left. You know, I just climbed Mount Washington. I, I told you guys that story. There were no 70-year-old guys on the mountain. And I just ran this crazy race and there were no 70-year-old guys in the race. And when I think about it that way, well then, yeah, from 70 to 78, 70 to 80, you can't probably do what you can do in your 40s and 50s. And so if you look at it that way, well then, I really only have 15 or 20 really relevant or prime years or, you know, or quality years in the sense of doing the things I want to do. I sleep a third of them. And a lot of my weekends are taken up with responsibilities. And when you think backwards, you realize that like, wow, my window is shrinking fast. And even in your 30s and 40s, like, that's why you wake up. You know, if I were to say to you guys, Sid, Preston, man, what you guys do April 18th? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. That was six days ago. You're going so fast. You can't remember how long, you know, one thing that I realized for myself is like my parents are 88. They're older and they live in Florida. Most people don't live that close to their parents. Do you live close to your parents, Preston? No, they're in Florida. How old are they? Uh, around 60. And how often, how many times a year do you see them? 
once or twice a year. Okay. So if you see them once a year and they're 60 and they live to be 78, you don't have 18 years with them. I mean, you do, but really, if you look at it in moments, not in time, you only have 18 visits with them. Yeah. When you look at time that way and you're like, wow, I might only see my parents 18 more times. That might not be acceptable and you might make changes. You understand what I'm saying? My parents are 88. If I see them twice a year and they live to be 92, I only see them eight more times. I'm like, I'm even on a plane to see my parents when you start to think of it that way. So my point is, I'm very aware of time. Very aware of it. You know, there's not a day, not one single day when my head hits the pillow at night when I don't look back and take a little inventory of, did I waste the day? Did I maximize the day? You know, did I do my best today? Did I spend my time with the people I want to spend it with doing the things I want to do? And that's sort of like my thought process. You hit a hot button. Time is a hot button. No, serious. Time is a hot button for me because everyone's like, oh my God, year went so fast and I can't believe I'm turning 40. This is, oh my God, my kids all grown up because we don't stop to take inventory of amazing moments. You and I shared an amazing moment. We climbed a mountain, but I was very aware in that moment that this was happening, Mm -hmm. that like, this is going to be something we have a relationship now that's different than it was. But part of that is because we were both aware that something amazing was happening. And I take inventory when that stuff is happening. There's a great moment. I'll take a minute and be like, wow, there's an appreciation. And and then it registers. And then I do know what I did April 18th because it's not just like happening so fast and I'm flipping the calendar. So when I went up to the monastery, time stopped because there were no other options. You know, when you get out of your routine, time goes slow. When you're in your routine, time goes fast. And I was so out of my routine (laughs) and had so much time to think that you start to realize what it is that's important to you, but more importantly, how much time you spend on things that aren't that important to you. You know, Jesse, I really like your point about moments and building these powerful moments. Now, I, I didn't share one of those moments with you guys climbing the mountain, one of the many reasons is that I don't have the same negotiation skills as you do with your wife, Jesse. <laughs> fascinating story in itself. But I do want to share one moment with you that I never shared with anyone else. And that's about our next question. And the moment is the first time I ever say naked pool discussion in my entire <laughs> life. That's the moment I'm sharing with you, Jesse. So people might be sitting out there and be like, what is steak? rambling about. You tell this amazing story about how a businessman had a profound impact on you when you were in your 20s. And it evolves around a very naked pool discussion. So I just said it for the second time in my life there, just because I could. So please tell that story, Jesse. I was in the music business and I didn't get picked up for a second album. And I moved to New York City from California with you know very little money at the time. And I was living at my friend's couch. And my time had run out and he told me as of Monday, his roommate really wanted the apartment back and I had to find a place to live. So that weekend I was at a bachelor party in New Jersey and I was at a bar with my friends and ordering a drink and a girl came over and we we just started talking and she asked me where I lived. And I told her, actually, as of Monday, I have nowhere to live. And she took out a napkin and she wrote her address down. She said, hey, if it's truly an emergency, you can come stay with me. I just met her. I never met her in my life. And I laughed and I said, all right, is that a real offer? And she said, it is. And Monday morning I woke up and I'm like, this is an emergency. I don't have anywhere to live. (laughs) I took out her address and I literally showed up with my one bag of stuff and I lived with her for six months. And during that time, I continued on in the music business from her couch, but I was at a really critical junction. I, I just wrote a song for the Knicks that had caught on, a theme song. And other teams were calling for me to write demos with the hope that if they liked my demo, they would buy this song for themselves. But I had no money to go in the studio and make all these demos. So I couldn't grow my business. So I went to a music manager and he said to me, 
you know, look, I'll give you ten thousand dollars. I'll lend it to you in cash, but I want ten percent of you, like forever. Like I was a stock, and with no money and twenty-one years old, and this guy had some connections. I was like, absolutely, this seems like a great deal. But before I did that, I went and talked to my roommate, this girl's dad, who was a big businessman and had some entertainment connections, but really, really successful guy, like ultra, ultra successful. So I go to his apartment in New York City and I walk into the apartment. We had a morning meeting and he's got all these amazing, like, I'm not into art, but I could tell that this shit was the art, like, you know, (laughs) names I've read in books on the walls and, and all this amazing furniture. And I go into his room where he was, he had like a little, like a bedroom. He was on in this penthouse apartment and he comes out of the pool for our meeting naked. He had a swimming pool, a lap pool in his apartment. And he came out naked, which was, you know, I didn't really know him that well with no problem. Starts talking to me and he puts on these little skimpy shorts and starts running on a treadmill and talking to me and I tell him my situation and you know I have no money. I have maybe a hundred dollars at the time or something. And I told him this guy to offer me the money. What would he do? Got off the treadmill and he said, you know what, Jesse, I would trade everything except my kids, everything that I have, the art, the pool, the private plane, for the one thing that you have. And I was like, me, I'm broke. What are you talking about? I said, well, what's that? And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, youth, the process to be able to go through the entire process of figuring it out and not knowing and being able to take risk and failing and winning and making new friends and the whole process of what you're about to go through. I give it all back. And that really stuck with me. And then he said to me, He gave me like the litmus test. He's like, would you bet everything, the farm, everything you have, your whole life, your name, your reputation, everything on the fact that you will make this project work and your heart, get past the ego of wanting to, can you make this thing work? And I said to him, I think I can make it work. Yeah. And he goes, no, you can't think. Will you make this project work no matter what? Look into the future, look into your heart, like look past, again, your ego. And I really looked deep into myself and I'm like, I will make this work without question. Then he was like, well, fuck the 10 grand, go do it, figure it out, start the process. And that was the start of my entrepreneurial journey. I was like, you know what? Keep your 10 grand. It might take me a little longer, but I'm going to enjoy the process. And I have ever since. You know, when things go bad, when I have to, I was reading the audio part of my book the other night, I had a deadline. So I was going to be in the recording booth for nine straight hours. This is after seven hours, the past two days in this little tiny booth. And all of my friends were going to go watch the NBA playoffs and everybody was going out and I couldn't, I had a deadline. And I just said to myself, this is what I signed up for. This is still part of the process. And this is what being an entrepreneur and this is what you know, trying to get this project done and completed to my satisfaction is all about. But this is what I signed up for. And there'll be other basketball games. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And the very first time that we had you on, Jesse, you talked about loving the journey and you talked about like being a rapper and, you know, being a rapper was not about receiving awards. I mean, yeah, that might happen to some, but it was like all the hustling and you, you got to love that. You got to love the journey. And it's really been an inspiration for Preston and me speaking to students and speaking to uh, new professionals going into the finance industry. And they're asking, what can we do to really, you know, advance and, and really like be successful in this? And I always refer them to your response. Do you love the journey? And, you know, you probably won't be surprised when I tell you that a significant part of the people who come and ask us, they do not like the journey of being in the financial sector. Like, yeah, they might like finance, but they don't like the long hours. They don't like the sacrifice. It's all of it. You have to immerse yourself in the entire experience. I agree. I think everybody has a, a different definition of success. You know, one definition is sort of what I said earlier. You know, you wake up in the day and say, I'm going to give it my all today. And at the end of the day, you look back and say, I did. You know, is success effort or is success result? Or is it both? Or is it happiness? Or is it, I mean, there's so many ways to grade it. One thing I've been very, very fortunate, and I hope my kids get this message, and I hope my friends, and I hope those around me get this message, is like, there's only one script. You're born, we're all dying. Some might die faster, some might live longer. But I'm pretty confident that in 110 years from now, nobody on the planet right now, our age will be around. And a lot of the worry and things that we're, we do day to day, it won't be relevant to the next generation. I mean, I, I love my grandma, but I don't think about her struggles. I think about my struggles, her journey, it's ended. And I think that if you go through that one script without rewrites to make it the script that you want, you could look back with a lot of regret. Now, I understand everyone has to make a living and I understand you have to sometimes take jobs that you don't love. but to stay in a situation like that long-term without trying something differently at night or working on something at the side or trying to make a change or downsizing and taking something that you do like, but living differently, which might make you happier. You know, that's a really tough place to be in. And I have a ton of friends in finance that make a lot of money and are miserable. I mean, obviously money, we all know money is not the end all means to happiness. But I know a lot of people that are miserable in what they do and they just stay in it. And then all of a sudden they're 60 and they think they're having fun or they had fun, but they don't even know what fun is until they experience fun. So when you have an appreciation for the process, even the bad things that happen, 
the bad days as an entrepreneur. I have plenty of bad days and plenty of things come that I can't control that I have to deal with. The toilet might overflow one day. I got to deal with it. Um, my wife looks at me and says, fix it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't plan on that. But my point is that I agree with you, Stig. I agree with you. And I want you to have that mindset shift to it's all about gratitude. You know, to be grateful to be in the position, to even go through the process. Look, you guys started a podcast. I'm sure it wasn't easy. It still isn't easy. Find guests, grow your audience. You want to put content out there that people enjoy. That's probably your mission statement, right? And we want to give content that that's what you guys are doing. And it never really gets easier, but you still have the love for it. And that's the backbone and the foundation of anything that you do. So Jesse, in the middle of the book, you have a quote that you published there that Brother Christopher had said to you. I don't know if you can recall which quote I'm referring to, but you're talking about this experience and he said something really profound to you. Can you tell us what that was? Yes, I do. I think you're referring to when he said to me, when you talk, you're only repeating what you already know. But if you listen, you may learn something new. And, you know, he said that to me early on and it made me realize that I'm not a great listener. And very often just by observing and listening at the monastery, for example, I learned so much. And usually I'm a talker. I'm, I'm a seller. I want to talk and it's about me. And it's just, I realized I had a lot of work to do and I could really grow, which is why I was there. I invested these days for personal development and to get better, that I really needed to become a better listener. And when I became aware of that and started just kind of slow down, even when I got back and even now, I even noticed in, in the opening of this podcast, I was so eager to jump in. And I was like, Jesse, listen to Stig and Preston and enjoy the intro. There's just a tremendous amount of growth that comes from listening. Yet. I realized that I, I struggled with that for 40 years of life. You know, I don't want to listen. So I can totally empathize with that. And you know, what was a game changer for me personally was doing this show when we had to go back initially and we had to listen to ourselves. The first thing <laughs> sticks laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. The first thing well, I noticed when I had to listen to myself was, oh my God, I interrupt people so much and it was really annoying. And so then after right. you do the show 200 times or whatever, you, you really start to understand how important it is to just shut up and just <laughs> listen to the other person. And it was a very hard transition for me. So, you know, reading the story in the book, when I read that quote, I was just like, wow, that is really profound and, and just such an awesome quote. Yeah. It's still something I'm working on and it's hard, but when you become aware of it and now I find that I can learn, and this is kind of what his message was. By listening, you can learn from anyone or anything if you allow yourself. And I never allowed myself. But now I'm like really, you know, I really, I've, I have slowed down, sort of, but I, I have an understanding and awareness to listen and become more aware of my surroundings, of people, you know, and not just experts. I think that was part of his message too. That, you know, you don't just always necessarily seek out experts. There's lessons all the time, everywhere, every day, if you allow yourself to listen. And I did. It's very interesting what you talked about earlier, too, about what is success, what is right thing for you and, and what's right for you, Jesse, might not be the same thing that Max Preston Tech. One thing that is so popular these days is really talking about happiness, which in many ways, it's probably kind of concerning because that probably means that thing that's missing in our life. But in your book, you told the monks two stories about events that took place in your own life. Would you mind sharing those stories with the audience? Sure. So, I mean, I, I was explaining to the monks at some time that we had together that my first job, this is crazy, but my first job was as a breakdancer. I grew up in New York in the 80s when you know, really hip hop and break dancing, like was really emerged. Jesse, how old are you at this point? I'd say I was like 14, 15, sophomore in high school. when like, when it really started to get momentum, and I'm not even talking about like pop radio momentum. I'm just talking about like momentum on a street level. 
So I decided that I wanted to go to Washington, D.C. to break dance because I figured there's no way the kids in D.C. could be as good as the kids in New York. Like, we invented this shit. So I convinced my sister who just got her driver's license to drive my friend Myron, who's my part of my crew, and myself down to Washington, D.C. to break dance. And we're like, well, you know, make some money and we'll come home. So we go down there. And the whole time down there, I'm struggling with, like, you know, nervous. But no one shows up, like, and we're all the way so far from home. And we show up in Georgetown and we go to this little parking lot in a bank and we have our boom box and a cassette. We set up the boom box and we push play and a little crowd eventually starts to show up. And then a bigger crowd shows up and I do my thing and I pass it to Myron and he does his thing and he sends it back to me. And we go through our whole routine and then we do it again. And we only had like a 30 second routine. So we did it like, you know, 40 times. I took off my hat and I started passing it around, collecting money. And at the end of the day, we had collected around, around $260, $70, something like that. And we gave my sister the gas money for the trip down. And then we took out money for food and money to get home. And then we had about, I think it was $82. We had $41 each. He starts counting all the singles, you know, all the way to 41. And then he puts it in his pocket and he sprints over to me and he gives me a bear hug. And he looks at me and he goes, Jess. We're fucking rich. We have $41 <laughs> each. And I told the monks that story. I said, well, you know, fast forward about 20 years later. And I got a call from my partner and we were selling our company, Marquee Jet, to NetJets, to Warren Buffett. And I was explaining to them that I wasn't really much happier at that moment than I was as this 14, 15-year-old kid, probably 15-year-old kid that made $41. And the obvious answer is that, you know, money's not going to bring you happiness. But I realized that it was like, if I worked hard at something that I liked and offered something that was positive to the world, my wife always says you find your purpose at the intersection of what it is you love to do, what you're good at, and something that you're offering to the world that's positive. And in that little breakdancing moment, it was something that I loved to do. I was decent at it and people were reacting positively and I got rewarded for it. It felt amazing. And at the Marquee Jet experience, yeah, I mean, I got this amazing, you know, it changed my life. But the passion, like I never really loved selling time on airplanes. I just didn't. I didn't feel like I was put on earth to sell time on private jets to people that could afford it. And I just never loved it. And even though the end result was way different, like I was, it didn't swing me this windfall all the way in the other direction. Love it. Yo, it's just like a quick thing. It's just, it really reminds me of the story that Tony Shea talks about in his book, Delivering Happiness. Whenever he sold his first company to Microsoft, he was like, yeah, I was like, eating this burger with my roommate and business partner and you know we sold it for I can't remember like it was a few hundred million whatever it was a lot of money it was like huh okay let's do something fun now it was kind of like this yeah. story you're saying it's because it, it's not about the money I guess it was just not the thrill anymore I recently took my son who's eight to climb Mount Washington which is freezing we camped outside in the winter in the snow and it was minus five degrees and we had this crazy sleeping bags to keep us warm blah 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 and I went with my friend Kevin, who's a police officer in Suffolk County, New York, and his daughter. The four of us went. And when we get to the top of the mountain or where we were camping out, I mean, it is so cold, I can't even explain it. So we're all in our sleeping bags, bundled up, you know, and Kevin is a blue collar guy. He's a police officer. He's been doing this forever. He doesn't come across a guy that's focused on money or accumulating money, but he's one of the happiest guys I ever met. I said to him, I said, Kevin, how many of these trips do you take a year? Like, you, you love it here. How many trips do you take a year? He goes, well, every year I take a trip with my high school friends. We've been doing it since we're 21 years old. And I'm like, gosh, I need to do that. I don't do that. I want to do that. And then he goes, I take probably six other trips a year. Like one time, one weekend, every other month, I take a trip. I go to LA to run the marathon. Maybe I go hiking with my family. Maybe I'll drive to the canyons, whatever. But I put it on my calendar every other month. I call it the Kevin rule. And I'm thinking to myself, if I can't take one weekend, every eight weekends, 
to put something on my calendar that makes me happy or creates a quote unquote moment like we were talking about, then the script is broken. I got to rewrite it because Kevin can work seven hard weeks or whatever, but he knows at that eighth weekend, he's going to do something he loves with the people he loves to do it with. And it's so simple, yet we barely ever do it. We live in a world of, you know, um, vacation time, I take a week off or, and that's it. Or we live in a world of, but all these opportunities and weekends, everybody, you know, and, and most of the things that we do, or he did, does, and I do, it doesn't cost him. Mount Washington, it costs nothing. The parking is free. You park for free. Yeah, you have to buy a sleeping bag. You got to get some boots, but it's not like you're flying first class to Europe and staying at the Four Seasons. And it was more fun. So my point is, he's got this five, I call it the Kevin rule, this five, six weekends a year, and it helps. Those things help. So you're talking about simplicity here, and I, this was another major theme that I saw in the book was when you're living with the monks, they were just really simple in everything and every way that they do anything, and they keep a very systematic schedule. It's almost like a programmed kind of schedule. Yes. After you went through that, why? What's the advantage to that? Is there an advantage to that? What's your thoughts on it? Well, I think I'm going to answer this in two ways. For starters, you know, I live in a world of multitasking. So I'm constantly doing multiple things at once or I'll spend five minutes here, jump to the new list, cross that off, go back to work, talk about my kids. I'm, I'm always multitasking. They monotask. They are so focused on quality over quantity and they don't put like really have time restraints around when they're going to finish. They're finished when it's done to perfection. So if their job was to clean the church, it was like, oh, I'm going to go clean the church for 15 minutes. I'm going to clean the church and I'm only going to focus on the church and I'm going to be done when the job is done. But it wasn't so much centered around time as it was around quality and completion. So for example, you know, say Brother Stavros would be like, this morning, I'm going to clean the church. It wasn't like, I'm going to clean the church. I'm going to do this. And here's 15 things on my to-do list. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to go to the next item. But I'm done with that. That's done. Off my list. And it's done to perfection. And like every single task they did, they did with every ounce of their soul. I've never seen anything like it. It could be organizing the books in the library. Like I'd stack them up. They would stack them up and push them in and make sure they were in size order. And then they would come back and look at it. Then they would clean the books. Then they would write the number on the books. And then I was like, wow. Well, is it the culture it a- that made them do it that way? Like, how can we extract that behavior into our own lives? Like, what is it that they have that made them that way? Is it just the culture? I think it's a little bit of the culture. Then the culture being that everything is theirs. So, you know, they have pledged all their possessions to the monastery. They own nothing. They own a driver's license. And if the bookshelf, when they clean up the books, those are their books and their bookshelf. And they treat it like it's theirs and their bookshelf. And, you know, there's a really strong sense of community. What's great about the monastery too, not to jump around or dodge the question, but I learned the community is so important. It's just so important. A hundred years ago, well, not even a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, My father lived with three generations in one house. And I think a lot of people, you know, in the 1900s, early 1900s, 20s, 30s, lived that way. And if there was a problem, they shared it collectively. If there was an illness in the family, they shared it collectively. Now, with planes and everything, and look at us, we both said, you live away from your parents. I live away from my parents. My brother lives in Colorado. My wife's brother lives in California. Like, it's very spread out. Our support system is scattered. Yes, we access them through Skype. We can access them through FaceTime and email. But it's a little bit of a different world. Their support system is together. So the responsibility of one becomes the responsibility of seven. So if the toilet bowl breaks, seven people can fix it. It doesn't all fall. If the toilet bowl breaks and there's no running water at my house, it's my responsibility. (laughs) On the monastery, it's shared seven ways. and that leads for a really interesting and different existence. It takes a lot of pressure off you. You don't want to let anyone down, you know? So the bookshelf, like I'm cleaning the church, you better clean the bookshelf. And it just leads to a really efficient system. 
And like anything, like any business or anything else, it starts at the top. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Jesse, talk to us about the Friday night hashing it out. What was it like 10 or five minutes that they had the opportunity to basically say their gripes to the community? Yeah. Every Friday night they got together and it was sharing. They would just basically get anything off their chest or shoulders that happened during the week and put it to bed. So they didn't walk around with resentment. They didn't walk around with harboring any kind of anger or angst. And they would just literally talk about each of the brothers. Each monk would get up. And I didn't share in this. This was their own private thing. But they would go up. They told me about it. And they would talk about it. And anything that happened during the week, that bothered them. And they would discuss it and put it to bed. And I was like, wow, I want to do that with my wife. Because very often I don't like, I won't even say anything. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to let it go. And then you let the next thing go. And then you start to have resentment and then you get mad and now you can't go revisit it because it was a month ago, but it's built up and it's happened five times. And I said to him, like, well, why do you guys do that? And he said, well, if I'm going to live with brother Thomas, why wouldn't I want to live in peace? And if I'm committed to a marriage, 
Why would I want it to be the best that it could be? Or if I have a relationship with my kids, why would I want it to be the best it can be? So why wouldn't I tell my son, look, I'm disappointed in the way you did something or I'm proud of this or if something I did bothered you, tell me. And it's like so simple and obvious, but nobody, you know, we don't really do it or we don't have a system to do it. And I thought like, wow, you know, five minutes, you know, once a week with my wife and we could be like, can I do anything this week that pissed you off or can I do anything better? Yeah. Changes the whole relationship. It's a relationship change. I think you said the magic word. It's systematic. You know, they've built yeah. this as like almost a protocol into the way that they operate. And I think that's the thing that I'm taking away from the book, at least, is to develop those protocols that really kind of optimize your life so you get everything that you want out of it. Without question. You know, we have mission statements for business. We write mission statements, but very few of us have our own personal mission statement. And very few people really write out like, well, what is my ideal day? What is my ideal life? What does it look like? You know, and if you were to script it, it probably wouldn't be like, I want to see my parents, and I'm not knocking you. I want to see my parents one time a year. I want to work, you know, 90 hours a week. It just probably wouldn't be like that. And little shifts can really make a big improvement. But it starts with an understanding, like exactly what you just said, of they wrote out, they chose the life that they wanted to live. Theirs is one of simplicity. And they map out the day according to, what that looks like. And that's a combination of social, labor, community, meals, prayer, and reflection. And it's really like we all have those components in our life, except our pie chart is a lot different. It's a little out of balance in how it's skewed. And theirs, to me, was a little bit more imbalance of what I wanted. Now, I don't want to go live on a monastery. I'm One of my takeaways is I love my life. I don't want their life. But I want components of their life to come into the way I live my life. So, Jesse, what happened whenever you came back from the monastery? Because I'm sure like with all the time that you had, all the silence and with all the good habits that you learned, what happens whenever you come home and people perhaps expect you to like go into the same loop as you used to, but now you have all these new tools in your life that you would like to implement. How does the world react to that? Well, it was hard for me coming back in because remember, I came back into a world that hasn't changed at all, but I come from a world that was completely different. So re-entering was very difficult for a little bit of time. It was a transition period for me. But you know, here I am, a lot of time has passed and 90% of my life is back to where it was. But there are 10% of these kind of changes and things that you guys mentioned, listening more than talking, mapping out more of the lifestyle I want, spending five minutes a week you know, with my wife, talking it out, having my own mission statement, having my own contract with myself of what my non-deliverables are and, and all that kind of stuff and being way more present and monotasking. I'm way more focused on and it's been way more efficient realizing that it's okay to not, I could have a long to-do list, but let me operate at a quality in the things that I'm doing. So I started implementing a lot of the things that I learned and it's been super helpful. And part of it for me was writing the book. It was a hard process for me. It took a really long time. It's very different than the seal book where there was one character. I had his voice. This, there were multiple characters. There was a lot of silence. There was a lot of reflection. So I wanted to write like a personal development book, but with a little bit of a different twist, a little bit of humor, a little bit of insight into a world, a spiritual world that not a lot of people have time or the ability to access and share some of those takeaways with the reader so they could spend three or four hours in my book and not 15 days on a monastery. So Jesse, I really like this story in the book. You said that you were there having dinner with some of the monks and you proposed a question to them and you said, if you could have dinner with three people, who would they be? And talk to us about the way that they reacted to your question and then tell us your story as well. Yeah, I was at a dinner party before I went to the monastery and the host of the party asked everyone there to go around and name three people that were alive that they would want to have dinner with. And it was a great exercise, but most of the answers were the obvious ones, you know, maybe 
Warren Buffett or Obama or Clinton or you know Oprah. But when it came to me, all three of mine at the time were truly were rappers. And the reason was I wanted to meet the three artists that changed the trajectory of my life as a kid growing up in New York. As a teenager, I wanted to thank them. And I wanted to find out how they marketed themselves in an age of no internet, how they wrote their songs. And so after the dinner, I was like, you know what? I'm going to invite the 10 most influential artists in my life to come to my house for dinner. And they all came. And people were like, well, how'd you get them to come? And I was like, I asked them. I only knew two of them. But I asked them in a very two-way pitch. Most pitches are one way. You know, you ask for something and it's like a one-way ask. I positioned it, which I think is very important in, you know, how you position things, obviously, as an opportunity to almost like a summit, go over business ideas. How can we all help each other? And you haven't seen a lot of these guys in years. So I'm putting this together for you guys as much as it was for me. And they all came and I told the monks the story. And the monks for me were all religious figures, many of which I hadn't heard of. But it's a really good exercise, you know, to think about because we live in a world where you can have virtual mentors. You know, many of the people that I look up to, I've never even met. I follow people on Instagram, like with just amazing stories and they're just fascinating to follow and super inspiring. And they don't even know I'm who I am or we have no personal relationship. So when you think about, you know, who are the people and who are the people that like are most like you in your world or that, you know, you'd really want to spend time with and how do you get them? You know, how do you get to know them? The reason I liked your response so much is because I think for a lot of people out there, they might answer that question by picking three people that could help them. And that's not what you did. You picked three people that you would wanted to thank and show gratitude towards. I didn't even read this in the book, but based on what you just said, and you wanted to help them in return. I really did. And so that's what's so profound about your response. And I think that's why it resonated so well with the monks is because there's an undertone to your response there that I think is really deep and profound. And I think that it really kind of, for me, it's the key ingredient to networking in general. And I know that we're kind of stepping into a different discussion there, but so many people want to network and they go about it in a manner like, hey, uh, what can I take from you? Or how can you help me? And that's their pitch, right? You know, you're right. And you know what? I never even, I've told that story a lot of times and I never realized you're right. I really did want to help them. And I still do. I never really looked at it that way, but you're a hundred percent right. You know, I, I really got them together and I wanted to offer something to them, but I was rewarded way more than yeah. that. It was yeah. your reciprocity, right? It was your way to give back yeah. because they gave you so much. So I don't know. I really yes. like that story. And I think it, it just speaks so much on so many different levels. I, I thought it was such a yeah. cool point in the book. So Jesse, the next question that we have for you is really something that we've been looking forward to because I think it's evident for everyone listening to the show how much life experience you have. And I also think how much you question common norms. You know, we read this amazing book by Oprah Winfrey and it was a book called What I Know For Sure. And the title really came from, she was guest on the show, and then the host asked her this profound question about what she knew for sure, and she simply didn't know how to answer it. So my question to you is, like looking back on your life and also forward, luckily, what do you know for sure? <laughs> oh my gosh. I know for sure that one day my time is going to run out. And I'm, like we said, I'm very aware of my relationship with time. And I know for sure that I want to collect as many, I want to build my life resume during my journey. So I know for sure that that's what makes me feel most alive. I know for sure that that what kind of extends my days, keeps me young. And I know for sure I want to spend as much time with the people I want to spend it with doing the things I want to do. And that might not be every second of every day, but I am aware that that is the most important thing other than health, my family, you know, to me right now. Wow. So specifically about this experience living in the monastery, what can you take away from that that you now know for sure that you didn't before? Really how important it is to spend time alone. And for me, 
I'm not into meditation. I'm not against it. I, I love it. I just don't, my form of meditation has been running alone. I've ran pretty much every day for 25 years. I've run 36,000 miles, 10,000 hours. And that has kept me, you know, really in tune with my gut. I think just in today's world, constantly, you know, having my phone attached to my hand, it's really important to spend time alone and keep that one superpower we all have that's free. And that's intuition. And I think that the really the only way to, to exercise that muscle and have sharp, good instincts and clarity is to spend some time alone and free up. Like we only have a limited amount of energy in our head. And if it's constantly bombarded and under attack, I think the average American makes like 35,000 decisions a day or something. You know, when you free up some of those decisions, it gives you room to be creative. It gives you more energy to, to do tasks, et cetera, et cetera. Jesse, last question here. We know you yeah. always have something brewing in the background and uh, <laughs> we, we know you're always up to something. So what is that something? Uh, well, I have a great event. Preston, you stig. I got to get you to this one, man. <laughs> we're doing an event again. Well, we're doing Everest again. And for anybody that wants an amazing challenge, come join me. And maybe Preston and Stig will come too. Similar to what we did in Vermont, where we rent a mountain, the entire mountain. And, you know, you hike up and take the gondola down. We did that in Vermont and it was called 29029. You go up, gondola down, up, gondola down until you climb the equivalent of Everest. We're doing another event. We're doing that in October and we're doing another one called Denali. It's the equivalent of Mount Denali, the highest mountain in North America. And we're doing that in August at Snow Basin, a resort that we rented, a mountain we rented in Utah. We bring in tents and all this stuff and you have three days to do it. So you can hike, walk, sleep, hike, walk, sleep. But I love challenges like this because it really resets me and it really helps me there's an old Japanese ritual called the Masogi. And the notion around the Masogi is you do something so hard one time a year that the benefits last the entire year. And uh-huh. I try to do one or two of those a year. And this August and this October, we'll be doing it again. And it's an amazing weekend. So if anyone's interested, can I give a free shameless sh- Absolutely. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes too. Go ahead. Okay, thanks. Yeah, just go to Jesse Itzler. J-E-S-S-E-I-T-Z-L-E-R.com and check out the experiences and uh, would love to have you join me. Preston, we had an amazing time last time. So hopefully you guys, Stig, you're more than welcome to come as my guest. We'll summit, talk, enjoy the altitude. I'm debating on whether I bring my wife. That's my question now. It's not whether I go, it's whether I bring my wife because I think she wants to do it. I'm bringing my wife to both. Oh, and then I have this. Preston, you guys will love this, Stig. So I'm turning 50 this year. Uh-huh. So I'm bringing in, you might have to get me on one more time, man, if, if I'm so lucky. <laughs> I'm bringing in 50 experts in 50 things that I always wanted to learn how to do. So like one a week for the entire year to come to my house. And I'm going to learn how to wakeboard, drive a stick ship, be a master chess, play ping pong. This it's is unbelievable. Incredible. This is the best part. It was like he completely forgot that that was something that was happening. Like he wasn't even going to mention it on the show and he brings it. Oh my God. You're out of control. Yeah. You're out of control. I freaking love it. All right, Jesse, uh, we will definitely take you up on that. Yes, we, we definitely need to talk about that in the future. We'll have a link in the show notes to uh, Jesse's page there. Please click on it. I can tell you from firsthand personal experience doing the Everest climb was just epic. Leading up to the event, for me, there was so much gain happening in my life during that period of time, kind of just training for this, that whenever I did the event, the event was just incredible. But then when it was over, I I had like this setback in my life. I don't know if I would call it a setback, but you could just feel like this energy (laughs) loss. You know what I mean? Like there was just like this energy loss. And so absolutely epic. There's no other word for it. Check it out. Jesse, thank you. Thank you guys so much, man. I really, you guys have been great to me. I really appreciate it. And thanks. And good luck with everything. Good luck with all the new ventures ahead and and the podcast. And, you know, thanks for giving me this opportunity as part of my process. 
I just really appreciate you guys, man. And I'm not just saying that. I really do. So thank you for uh, always helping me out, guys. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thank you.